this episode of Drug Target Reviews podcast, sponsored by Molecular Devices. I'm your host, Ria Kakad, Assistant Editor of Drug Target Review. This episode is the third part of our Organoid series. If you missed the previous episode, you could check it out on the Drug Target Review website. You can find more information in the description box. In this episode, we'll be discussing data acquisition in three-dimensional organoids. I'll be joined by Angeline Lim, Senior Application Scientist at Molecular Devices. Also joining us is David Egan, CEO of Core Life Analytics. But before we start, let's hear from our sponsors, Molecular Devices. This podcast is brought to you by Molecular Devices. With its innovative life science technology, Molecular Devices makes scientific breakthroughs possible for academic, pharmaceutical, government, and biotech customers. Head to moleculardevices.com to find out more. Welcome to the show, Angeline and David. It's wonderful to have you both here today. I'm excited to begin our discussion. But before we do so, I think it'll be great to hear a little bit about your backgrounds. Angeline, could you introduce yourself, please? Definitely. Hi, my name is Angeline. I'm a senior application scientist at Molecular Devices. And so a bit about what I do, most of my work is focused on high-throughput imaging and analysis. And the last two years, or even a little bit more, we started working a lot with 3D biology models. And even more recently, I'm also developing protocols and and assays and workflows that will enable other researchers to scale up their 3D cell culture system in a more automated fashion. So we are also doing a lot of automation around 3D biology. Prior to this, I spent a lot of time in academia. I was actually a fruit fly geneticist, and I did a lot of microscopy during that time. Perfect. Thank you. Over to you, David. Yeah. Thanks, Ria. My name is David Egan. I'm the CEO of uh, Core Life Analytics. And uh, what we do is, you know, we try to help biologists to get access to advanced data analytics so they can analyze complex uh, data sets. And, uh, you know, our lead product is a, a platform called Stratominer, which allows people who are doing high content screening, image-based screening, to analyze their numeric data. So, you know, Core Life Analytics has been active for since early 2017, and just uh, early last year, we actually signed a sales agreement partnership with Molecular Devices, and so now Molecular Devices can offer our Stratominer application to their uh, their customers. So that's you know one of the reasons I'm, I'm here with Angeline today, and we've been doing some very nice work together over the last you know year and a half or so, uh, looking at you know 2D and more recently uh, 3D data. Because, of course, that's a, you know, a rapidly growing field. My background was originally in molecular biology, but then into you know, the use of automation for biology with high-throughput screening. And then uh, later on, then got into uh, image-based high-content screening. So, yeah, I'm a screener. So, uh, you know, I understand Angeline's problems. And, uh, and we both understand our, our customers' problems very well, I think. That's kind of how it all started, right? I had a problem and you had a solution and that's how we we met on the conferences. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Nice. That's really great to hear. So we're here today to discuss data analysis of organoids. But to set the scene, maybe we could discuss the differences between 2D cell cultures and 3D organoids. Angeline, what are the differences between analyzing 3D and 2D cell models? First of all, with 2D cultures... It's the mainstream culture or the more conventional way of growing cells. For It's been around for a very long time. But there is sort of a shift in thinking and also there's more data showing that they are not very physiologically relevant because these are cells that are stretched in a monolayer on, uh, on a piece of plastic. 
just simply put. And this is not how the cells are in your body, where they have a three-dimensional structure, they have interaction with you know, uh, tissues and the extracellular matrix in the environment. And so that causes their behavior to be very different. And so because of that, uh, more and more researchers are, are starting to be interested in using 3D cell cultures or even organoids and spheroids in their research. And as they use these models, they, they come across a different kind of problem. How do we carry out experiments with them and how do we analyze the data that we get from these 3D culture models? And when it comes to doing experiments, most of us turn to an image-based type of um, assay. So when it comes to image acquisition, it's definitely a lot more difficult in 3D structures because you have to image through the deeper layers of the sample just to be able to, to see what's making up that 3D volume. So, you know, issues like having the right like penetration and whether your, your microscope or your imager is able to do 3D volumetric imaging, these are all issues in the field. And so when it comes to imaging, I would say confocal microscopy is a good one to use just because you can get good reconstitution of the of the Z-stacks and other technologies that we have available at molecular devices to help you with the 3D acquisition is with water immersion objectives. So with water immersion, you're basically trying to channel the light through into the sample. You're matching all the refractive index as much as you can so that you don't lose that light through scattering or just, you know, the, the differences in refractive index causes the light to bend out of the sample and doesn't get to the camera. David, do you have anything to add? Yeah, so from our standpoint, of course, a lot of the, the challenges are based on the volume of data. So as Angeline mentioned, you know, you're looking at, at a, a 3D object. And so the way you treat that with your microscopy is you're taking optical slices through the object from top to bottom. So the amount of data that's coming out of, you know, each well is, you know, far higher. Also, you're, you're going to be, you know, trying to get the highest resolution possible to be able to look at the differences and, and look at the individual cells within the object as well as the overall object itself. So what you end up looking at is, you know, with 2D imaging, yeah, you probably might end up with, you know, gigabytes of images. But with 3D imaging, yeah, you can quickly, even from a single plate, get into, you know, terabytes of image data. You know, that's a big challenge because, you know, just moving around large amounts of images and then doing analysis on those, you know, requires a lot of data storage space and then computational power. Again, the type of image analysis you do for, for these studies is often what we call, you know, segmentation. So the image analysis software, it let's say, finds a nucleus, then it defines the cell, then it starts extracting measurements from objects within the cell. And again, yeah, you might have, you know, megabytes of data from a 2D experiment, but then when you get into a 3D experiment, you rapidly get into, you know, large numbers of gigabytes of numeric data. We're not just talking about the image data. Um, so, you know, this then, it, it just, yeah, it just massively increases the challenges of the data analysis. So you need, you know, specialized software to do the volumetric data analysis, because one of the big advantages of these 3D systems is that as opposed to just looking within individual cells at what's going on within the individual cell and taking measurements within the individual cells, you start to do this spatial analysis where you can extract measurements of the relationships between different cells. So this is something that could be, is very powerful in, in areas like you know, immune oncology, 
where you might be looking at, let's say, a, an organoid, a tumor organoid, and then adding other types of cells, let's say T cells, seeing where they end up in relation to tumor cells or other stromal cells. And all those measurements require specialized software and uh, software that requires a lot of power to run. So uh, these are some of the big challenges and differences between the 2D and the 3D. There is also the idea of time. How long does it take to analyze this data? The better computational power you have, the faster you can go, but there is still a certain limit in terms of speed. And that all ties into just how much more data you're acquiring. And just in terms of you know, time perspective, when I started doing 3D imaging and analysis, I was once analyzing a pretty complex structure. It had 50 Z-planes and multiple sites. And it took me at least two hours just to get data or the numbers from one well. So you can imagine like how much more time it takes. And then we, of course, tried something different. I then used um, something called PowerCore that we have at Molecular Devices that does parallel processing. And it, it reduced the time to, I believe, it was like 30 minutes. And so that, that was significant for me. But still, it's still a significant amount of time spent on analysis and waiting for the numbers to come out. And one thing we learn in automation is that if you apply automation at one point in the process, you're just creating a bottleneck at another point in the process. So if you can speed up your imaging, then you know probably the transfer of the images becomes a bottleneck. If you can get the images somewhere else quickly, then analysis of the images becomes a bottleneck. So <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's great for us as solution providers because then you know we can develop solutions for all the other bottlenecks and, uh, and supplies those to our customers as well. But uh, yeah, uh, it is a challenge. Perfect. Thank you both. What readouts are important before selecting a strategy to analyze your data? One thing you do 3D analysis, I think readouts are important. You have to think about what your biology is, what question are you asking and what you're going for. So, you know, very simple readouts. Sometimes you don't need to do 3D for that if you're just answering simple questions like how big are these structures. Sometimes you can get away with just a projection analysis. So having the question is key, knowing what you want out of it is very important. But I think when it comes to the 3D space, in some instances, people may not know what they want. They are kind of doing a fishing expedition, a little bit like a phenotypic analysis. They want to get as much of the data as possible, even in the volume. And I think in this way, what Stratominer has could be very useful in helping you sort of understand all that data. So it, it doesn't go down just one measurement anymore. It's more of the what is the set of all the measurements you can get from your volumetric data or for your from your experiment, and then looking at the profiles and comparing them. And so this, I think, is sort of a new way or a paradigm shift in the way we're looking at data and how to analyze them. Yeah, this ties in really very well with our philosophy is that 20 years ago, people were generating, you know, very simple data, one or two measurements out of each well, you could use that data, you know, analyze that data in an Excel sheet, and then it would be dumped into a uh, some sort of big relational database. Now, you have, you know, hundreds or even thousands of measurements that you need to analyze. So that's why you need tools like Stratominer in order to make sense of those. And when we first started this, a lot of our customers would 
come to us when they already had large amounts of data. They'd done a big screen and, oh yeah, Stratomine would be useful for helping us to make sense of this. But what we really try to push them to do is to actually start thinking about their analysis strategies when they're just starting to develop their assay. And then they can, you know, use Stratominer and 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 use molecular devices uh, software to their greatest capabilities in order to generate as much data as possible. When you're still doing small scale experiments, then figure out, you know, what are the appropriate readouts that are giving you going to give you the the best insights into your uh, into into your biology, so that then you know, you can come up with a really good strategy for how to get the most knowledge out of your experiment. You know, and this is really critical because these are expensive experiments to run. And the, you know, the costs of running these uh, these experiments can be very high, especially if you're, you know, if you have, let's say, using, you know, Matrigel. Also, there are a lot of costs because they're extremely labor-intensive to set up, you know, passaging you know, 3D structures can be quite labor-intensive, can take a long time, uh, and to get enough material to do a screen. And then, yeah, just, you know, to not get the most value out of the data, you could run through a lot of uh, a lot of resources. Yeah, so it's critical to get this right uh, from the get-go. And one of the things we talk about a lot is to start small, right? Start small, figure it out first, and then go back and do it again. And I was at a talk last year where this person who runs screening facility, he says, in the entire workflow, you spend the most time just developing your essay, at least six months to get it right. And so this is something I feel like some users are not aware of when they start. They think I can just go in and throw all my samples and just get it done at one try. But it's a lot more complex and requires more resources and, and sort of thinking and optimizing before you can launch into it. Yeah, cutting corners in your assay development and validation is yeah is disaster, and it's human nature, you know, especially in in academic settings. You're a graduate student or, or a, a postdoc, and yeah, <laughs> you want to you know get the experiment done so you can get the paper published and move on to the next stage. And it, it's so hard sometimes to hold people back and to encourage them to do the next round of validation to actually spend to use up more reagents in the assay development. That's another one. People would come to us and with a, an assay development experiment in just a handful of wells. And yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, you got to scale that up gradually. And we would tell them, yeah, you're going to be spending a lot more of the reagents in the actual development and validation than you probably will in the screen itself. So yeah, do not cut corners at that stage. It's going to come back to bite you later on. It's funny, I always advise people to do that, but <laughs> I don't follow my own advice sometimes. You know, one of the, the things that I remember in grad school was my advisor would say, try to really tweak your image acquisition so that it's as good as you can get, so that when you do analysis later, you would have an easier time. But so often we are in a rush. You know, we prep our sample, we put it on the imager, and then we just go, go, go. And then you get to the data or the image analysis, you end up having to do so much processing just to make it look decent that you realize if I had started with maybe nicer samples or spent a little bit more time in fine-tuning my image acquisition protocol, I would have you know much better time now. So yeah, it's, it's these little nuggets of time that you spend optimizing that would help you so much later. 
Yeah, I feel like everyone has those opportunities to kind of like save time in the long run. But, you know, you just want to get to the shortcut as soon as possible. There you go. Instant gratification. That's what we're all about. <laughs> Dinosaur brain. Dinosaur brain. <laughs> we're still stuck in the past. <laughs> okay, perfect. Both of you mentioned before about resources and labor. Are you talking about human resources here? physical part of creating your samples, 3D culture, 3D samples, requires a lot of manual manipulation with pipette. Just the process, you know, you, you have to grow up the cells in 2D first, and then once you get a large enough volume, you have to mix them with the matrix, and then you would have to very diligently pipette a single drop of this dome-like structure into your plate. The reason why we plate them as a dome is so that we can save on the reagent. Again, this is expensive reagent, so we, we make little domes. And you basically have to hold your hand steady. Make sure that your pipette tip is centered as much as possible. Make that little dome and then withdraw your pipette tip. And you do this 384 times for one plate, assuming it's a 384 well plate. But you can imagine just how challenging that is and how, how tired your hand gets. Right, your first column may look perfect. By the time you get your last column, it's usually, mm -mm. It's, it's not something I want to look at anymore. <laughs> so in terms of the manual labor, it's, it's huge. And then there's a lot of maintenance as well. You may have to come back every two or three days just to make sure that you're replenishing the media. So once you start these experiments, you can't forget about having your full weekends. You have to come in a lab and make sure that they are still alive, they're growing, and if something looks wrong, you want to be able to stop it and figure out what went wrong. You don't want to continue an experiment that you know is going to fail. So there, there is a lot of that kind of human labor involved, as well as expert knowledge to be able to identify issues really early in the process. Yeah, I have some kind of historical perspective here because, you know, I used to run a, a screening before Core Life Analytics. I ran a screening facility in Utrecht here in the Netherlands. And just down the road from us, we had uh, the Hubert Institute where Hans Slavers originally developed a lot of this kind of organoid uh, technology from his work on uh, intestinal development. And uh, I remember getting a tour of their lab because we were helping them to automate, uh, let's say, drug profiling of organoids in 3D four-wheel plates, not with image-based screening, but with more simple uh, uh, viability screening. And I was horrified at you know, the number of people who were just there passaging uh, the organoids and you know i said i said to someone who's giving me the tour i said yeah there's got to be some sort of robotic solution for this this is madness you know and sure enough yeah there are people now there are people who are who have developed robotic solutions for handling organoids yeah and and so rather than depending on human labor we are turning more to automation and so one of the things that I've spent a lot of time doing is, you know, observing or being very mindful of how I do the manual work and then translating all the actions into an automation workflow. So, for example, we use the liquid handling tool, well, not tool, it's an instrument. We have these, uh, it's called, the, it's from Hamilton, and there are other companies that make it too. And so it can help you do all these ma manual pipetting steps with a robot, and that really frees up my time to go do other things. And with the cell culture process, it's not just one instrument that you use. Usually it's multiple instruments. And I like to sort of illustrate my day by saying I come into the lab, I go into the tissue culture room, pull a plate out of the incubator, observe it under a microscope, and then go on to do other things in the tissue culture hood, so on and so forth. So I spend a lot of time just shuttling plates around and doing an action. 
And so at Molecular Devices, we have set up something that we call the Organoid Innovation Center that has a robot that is in the middle of all of these instruments that we frequently use. And so what it does is that at a certain time, it will go into the incubator, pull out a plate. It can identify it by a barcode. And it pulls out the plate and it puts in the imager, starts a protocol, takes it out, puts it in the liquid handler, and then gets something like a media exchange process going. And so in this way, it's sort of mimicking my motions. And so it doesn't require me to come in all the time and do these things of shuttling the plates around. And so I think in facilities or in places where you want to scale up and grow lots of 3D cultures and organoids, this is, I would say, is the solution rather than being dependent on 50 technicians to come in and do this, for example. Great, thank you. Are there any kind of like different types of softwares that researchers can use, you know, for example, turning an image into the data, like converting that? Definitely. And that's where I think molecular devices is pretty strong at. We have at least, we have different software that would do that. But I, I think what I really want to focus on is, I guess I would say it's a newer software. It's called Encarta, image analysis software. And it's really nice because it comes with some machine learning and AI or artificial intelligence tools. And that really helps simplify the researcher's workflow. So very frequently when you acquire images, you have to turn these into numbers. And as David mentioned earlier, you have to carry out this step called image segmentation. And segmentation is a way of sort of identifying the objects that you want to measure. And this is, I think, critical in almost every image analysis workflow. So then Carter, they have a tool that's dependent on deep learning, and we call that SYNAP, which stands for segmentation is not a problem. So S-I-N-A-P, right? And with this deep learning tool, what you do is you annotate or label your images. So you have a couple of images and you sort of use almost like a Photoshop-like tool to identify what is the object you want. So you color it, it's a bit like adult coloring. You color it in and then you sort of feed that into the deep learning algorithm and it learns to identify that object. So you create that model, and then you can apply it to your entire set of data. And then if, if you've trained the model correctly, it's very robust. It works very well. It changes your life. Instead of spending time fine-tuning every little parameter about how you want to pick out these objects or doing the segmentation, you just create these models. And yeah, and I, I think this is a tool that not as many people know about. I, I wish they know more about it because it really simplifies your, your workflow and I love using it. So that's one of the tools that we use to turn images into numbers. And once you get the numbers, you then have to do a data analytics. And when I first started doing the, the experiment, um, actually I first started doing cell painting where I have lots of numbers and I realized I didn't know what to do with them. I then found David, <laughs> who then showed me Stratomine. And I'm like, oh, this is a tool that will really help me because as a life scientist or biologist in my training, I don't have all that, you know, data crunching, data and analytic skills. And so software like Stratominer would really help you get your entire workflow from start to finish. I would say it's very user-friendly. Yeah. David, do you have anything to add? Yeah, so then, you know, once you have your numeric data, that's very much where, you know, where we come in. And so Stratominer is essentially, you know, data science in, in a box so that you can upload your numeric data and it just walks you through an analysis workflow. It helps you to, yeah, throw out the garbage, figure out, you know, kind of curate your set of, uh, you know, measurements to figure out what's useful, do quality control. And then it can take you on to uh, 
more advanced methods. So you can really, you know, generate these kind of profiles of measurements or, or principal components more, you know, uh, after data reduction. And then these profiles are really highlighting the differences between different treatments, different phenotypes. You can classify them. And so this really kind of gives you, and what really turned me on to this whole field and, and, and this type of advanced analysis was it can give you insights into mechanism of action of a new chemical, a new drug, you know, from a cell-based assay. So previously, if you wanted to get a handle of mechanism of action, you really had to dig in and do very reductionist experiments, isolate, you know, the protein, see if the chemical binds to it, things like this, do maybe advanced genetics experiments in, in other models. You know, with these approaches, these image-based approaches and high content methods, you can start to get a handle on on mechanism of action just from, you know, the images. And that's, in a way, it's almost miraculous that you can actually uh, actually do that. And it's kind of a big, it's a thing that I didn't anticipate is how you can just transform people's lives in a way, their working life, by allowing them to do their own image analysis, you know, so quickly, and then to go on and analyze the data themselves. And it actually brings a lot of joy to people because that's why we, that's why we got into science in the first place. You know, with me, it was like molecular biology. You do a very simple experiment where you, you know, you cut, you know, DNA plasmid. You might do a PCR experiment, and then you run the results on a gel, and you see the band that you expect. And it's like, yay, you know, that's so exciting. And that's that kind of little rush of, you know, of seeing the results. But when then you start to generate much larger, complex data sets, that kind of went away because you had to hand them off to somebody else to, oh, this is the image analysis guru. They know how to write scripts in image J and, and they'll help me with that. And then the numbers will have to go to someone else who understands the stats. And now between, you know, molecular devices and core life analytics, you know, biologists can do it all themselves. And that's really, that's, it's very rewarding, you know, to be able to help people like that and to be able to, uh, you know, give them the power to do this themselves. It's, yeah, the democratization of advanced advanced scientific methods. That's what it's all about. And maybe the word we're looking for here is that it empowers researchers to really like get into that data and understand what's going on in there because they understand the biology. They understand the question they're asking and and, and what they're looking for and where they're going. And so it's yeah, I think like I felt empowered that I can at some point understand what I'm doing because you know, while Strata Miner is made to be user-friendly, as you are going through the process, you are learning so much about data analytics, right? I mean, it doesn't make me a data scientist, but it gets me into their mindset and understand why they're doing this and, you know, not so much how, but why and why it's important. I think same with image analysis. I've listened to so many talks about, you know, these people using deep learning tools and these different models and these different, you know, networks, neural networks, and I walk away and go like, that's wow, but how do I do that? You know, I'm not the person to be writing the scripts and doing the, the, you know, doing all that stuff. But I feel very empowered when I'm using Carter and I go, hey, here I can do my own deep learning based segmentation, build my model, train it and validate it. So I think, yeah, that's a powerful tool that I think we offer to the customers. Angeline, are there any barriers within the 3D organoid space? 3D organoid system, it's very promising, it, it, it's great, but I think because it's so, um, it's still pretty novel and early in development, protocols are still trying 
to be like we're still figuring out what is a good protocol, what would really be robust. We're still really in that stage of development. There are new papers coming out all the time, and you want to be updated about what is the best way to grow the cells.、Um, does this really matter? And so I would say, in a sense. Just the the rate of development in the field can be a challenge because we are not at a point where this is the way you would do this. You know, there's just so much changes and flux. It's very dynamic, and of course, other barriers are just again, like mentioned, it's very manual, it's very labor intensive, and so then people have to go and turn to automation, and it takes time to get it set up, and then you have to, of course, do the asset development that takes up to six months.、Um, so, all of these are, are barriers and challenges when it comes to growing. Organoids and being in that 3D feel, and then of course there will be other barriers when it comes to the technology, you know, using the analysis and the data analytics that David can comment more about. Yeah, a lot, a lot of, from the data standpoint, a lot of it we've kind of alluded to a little bit earlier.、Uh, just the sheer volume of data and the computational power that's required to actually handle the data. So one of the things that we're doing at Core Life Analytics is we're starting to look at some of these issues. We've actually just You know, launching a product that we call the Strataverse, which is a, a platform we've built around Strataminer, where not only are we going to be able to help people with the analytics of the numeric data, but also with you know cloud-based image storage and high-performance computing, so that people will be able to yeah do their image analysis in a in a, a parallel fashion and and to speed that up. And I think that'll become especially critical. When it comes to this kind of for the the three D, let's say volumetric analysis, which is going to require a, a lot more power. So yeah, I think these are the、uh, you know some of the main challenges. Then farther down the road, I think where we're starting to move to is especially when it comes to deep learning and advanced AI, is moving into this space of explainability. So the more kind of traditional way of of using artificial intelligence is to to build a model. Based on positive or negative controls, and then classify everything according to similarity to these controls, and you know, and that was you know a pretty straightforward type of question. But now, what we want to do is, in similar in a way to Synap works, we want to use you know、uh, deep learning for more advanced questions, and you start to come into the question of explainability. So you're using advanced AI methods to define different classes of Chemicals or reagents or antibodies, according to their phenotypes, but then why are they actually different? And of course, that feeds into the biology, and that is what you know explainability is about. Not only is the the platform telling you, okay, these are in different, let's say, groups or clusters, you wanted to tell you why. And so, some of the methods that that、uh, that people are using are again going back to the images. And let's say overlaying the image with some sort of indication of where important changes are happening, and then you can visually see.、Uh, the idea is that you'd be able to visually see. Aha! So in this cluster, we're seeing changes in this particular channel in these particular organelles, and okay, maybe it's got something to、uh, to do with yeah this particular process. So that's kind of the kind of cutting edge of.、Um, Uh, that we're, you know, people are starting to work on now is、uh, explainability. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for in this discussion today. But thank you so much, Angeline and David, for joining me on this podcast and for your excellent points. It's been fantastic to speak to you both. Thank you very much, Ria. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks again, Angeline.
Well, thank you, David. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this Drug Target Review podcast, sponsored by Molecular Devices. I've been Ria Kakad, Assistant Editor of Drug Target Review. Make sure to keep an eye out for our final episode of the Organoid mini-series. Mm-hmm.